Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis, the hormone revolutionist. Hi, I'm Nicole Jardim, the period fixer. And you're listening to another episode of our world-famous podcast, The Period Party, which is what happens when you get two women's health experts unscripted, uncensored, and on the air. Think of it as girl talk gone menstrual. On The Period Party, we talk about all of those off-limit topics, periods, hormones, vaginas, fertility, women's health, and more. Join us each episode for fun, fresh, and truthful conversation, and let us help you understand your body better. This episode is with thanks to my masterclass debunking ovulation, helping you understand the truth about ovulation and understanding your body no matter what your cycle looks like. On this episode, our guest is Steph Gaudreau. She's a nutritional therapy consultant, strength coach, podcaster, author, cold brew lover, and Lord of the Rings nerd. Steph believes women have the right to feel strong and take up space because the world needs our voices. Amen, sister. Her new book, The Core Four, comes out on July 30th. Thank you so much, Steph. We're really glad that you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yes. I'm excited too. Actually, I have a confession. Hmm. I just started following you on Instagram. I feel like I might have missed the memo. (laughs) But I noticed you were following me, so then I felt really bad. I'm like, oh, and the funny thing is there's a picture of you eating cake for breakfast, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I saw that picture somehow the other day. And then, anyway, I'm very excited to learn more about what you do. I would love to learn how it is that you found yourself in this sort of world that you're currently living in in terms of, you know, all of the hats that you wear. Yeah, it was, it's been a strange journey, but uh, to keep it succinct to say that I had a, my first career was as a high school chemistry and biology teacher. What? I did that for 12 years, which seems impossible because I still feel like I'm in my twenties, but alas, I am not. So I did that for 12 years and at about year 10, I had rumblings somewhere deep in my soul that I wasn't where I was supposed to be with this career to make a long story short, I ended up leaving and taking this hobbyist blog that I had, which I had started a, a couple years prior and decided to turn it into a business. I had a year leave of absence, so I could go back to my job. So it wasn't like one of those all out flip the table kind of quits. But, um, you know, I had a year to basically decide how successful this was going to be, at least at the beginning. And so I left the world of teaching and immersed myself into the world of nutrition and recipe creation. And I have always been an athlete and was lifting weights at the time and continued to do that. So it's really evolved over the last six years or so, but it's been a strange journey. <laughs> it has for all of us. <laughs> I yeah. feel like I was the most unlikely candidate for the job I currently have in that I studied film production and digital media in school. And that was my dream life. So yeah, I did a complete 180. So I, I get it. I love that you were a high school teacher though. Mm-hmm. Teaching high schoolers has always sounded completely terrifying oh to me. Oh my God, that is terrifying. <laughs> yes. yes. Wow. But if you were the cool teacher, it would be fine, right? If you were the actual one that they could relate to, I think we all had that young cool teacher that everybody kind of gravitated towards. Maybe that's what I could do. <laughs> Here I am trying to say that I'm cool. <laughs> There's something about being, you know, being a strict teacher that kids, and you know, they would give you a hard time all year because you have standards. And, you know, I wasn't the cool, fun teacher because there, we definitely had plenty of those who were just really lax with their rules. And I had a lot of rules 
and tried to be fair, but still, you know, maintain authority and order in this classroom with 30, 16 year olds. It's not easy. And at the end of the year, I would get kids and they'd come up to me and say, oh, miss, this was my favorite class. And I just thought you'd give me nothing but shit all year. And now I find out that you really liked it. So, hey, at least it ended on a good note, but can never predict. True. Speaking of Instagram, which we were talking about a little while ago, I saw a post of yours and it was a picture of a steak and potatoes and green beans. And I actually was having this conversation on Instagram because apparently this is what we all do these days and that's it with Laura Schoenfeld about a plate that she shared, which was mm-hmm. similar to what you had at your account. And the conversation was surrounding the same thing you were talking about, about eating a lot of food and that she and I both eat about the same as our six foot four men usually for dinner. And there's always been this inherent shame around how much food we eat. And so I would really love to talk about that because I feel like this is a conversation that's come up with a couple of other people recently too, about, you know, like you said, not just pushing a few pieces of lettuce and a cherry tomato around on a plate Mm -hmm. and actually eating real food as women and why that is so weird for us to accept and for other people to accept and embrace. We only have 30 minutes. So I know, girl. Sorry. (laughs) No, but this is such an interesting question and it's so multifaceted. And when you really dive down, I mean, beyond just the obvious, you know, like we don't want to be judged or somebody's going to say something about what's on our plate. When you really, really, really chase that rabbit hole of why are women afraid to be strong? I did a talk on this in New Zealand a few years ago, like, why are women afraid of strength training? Why are we afraid to be strong? Why are we afraid to eat more food? Why are we afraid to show up bigger in the world? In the diet aspect of that, a lot of it comes down to fear of being fat and fat phobia. What our culture has taught us about dieting and the roots of diet culture, which run very, very deep. And at the heart of it all, you know, why am I putting less on my plate? Well, I, I want to make sure I don't gain weight. Well, what if I gain weight? What does that mean? That means that I'm fat and I will be undesirable and I'm not a good person. And all these things that we've made, at least in American culture, we've made fatness out to be. And it just gets, it gets really real pretty fast. And you see that bear out in so many ways, like anything from the gym to what people are putting on their plate to the things that they're afraid to go after in their lives. And it's such a messy conversation. And there are so many places where there's an intersection between your social identity and how you were socialized and raised. And I'm not the most eloquent speaker on any of these things, but as I've been digging into it more and more with people, that's really where it comes from, you know, and there's even bits and pieces of if we eat more than a man, is that emasculating him? Or so many people on that post told me, you know, I'll order the steak and my significant male other will order a salad or a piece of fish or whatever. And the server will come to the table and reverse the plates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's ingrained. Yes. Yeah. I could see that. That is actually hilarious. Yes. I think for a lot of people, it just comes down to this constant narrative of eat less, move more, eat less, move more. And the women that I work with, a lot of them, they are already eating very little. And a lot of them are exercising a lot, perhaps even too much for what their stress levels can take in this sort of thing. So that whole eat less, move more, 
narrative, that tagline that's been repeated over and over again is just what people have internalized. And I think the tricky part is that for women that then become self-aware that this is happening, there's then often this like heaped on layer of judgment beyond that of, oh, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so dumb to have fallen for this? Or how could I have let someone convince me of what was right for me and, and so on and so forth? So it's just a sticky quagmire of trying to, you know, pick this apart and peel the layers back and understand where it's coming from. And then looking for that alternative to fill, you know, that gap of instead of following those kind of eat less, move more rules, Mm -hmm. what's making sense for me and how can I take that approach of what's nourishing, but without falling into the tight constraints of, well, now I'm going to focus on nourishing foods, but then I need to be really militant and, and obsessive about that too. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I just had another conversation with a friend today about, she was just saying a lot of food shame is coming up because she's realizing, you know, she had done an elimination diet. She has psoriasis and so has, you know, some autoimmune issues happening. And so done an elimination diet, but realized she really just wasn't eating enough and was so hungry all the time Mm. and was recognizing the shame around or the shame that was coming up around needing to eat more or needing to eat more times in the day at least for her and feeling as though she was breaking some invisible rule and just feeling this like undercurrent of shame. And I was like, that's crazy. But where does that come from? We all have this. It's like this invisible thing that we're all bound to somehow. Yeah. Again, I think it just comes back to what are the messages that we've been absorbing? And I had a conversation with somebody on Facebook about this the other day where, you know, she had been in a larger body, was now in a smaller body and kept picturing herself in the larger body and couldn't rectify those two things. And I, you know, of course was like, if you need therapy, that's totally fine. There is no shame in having someone who's professionally trained in this to help you out. But beyond that, the words that you're using for yourself, did you choose them for yourself? When did you first come into contact with these words? Was this an idea that you absorbed from the time you were very young. For me, it was my stepdad when I was probably, I don't know, seven, eight, maybe saying that I was the fat kid. Mm. When we're so young and we're so impressionable or we hear it in advertising or we're watching television and we're seeing you know, the Jenny Craig ads with the measuring tape around your waist or we see in movies or on television that the fat character is always self-deprecating or they're always the funny one because they have to be funny to be likable. Or, you know, you just can extrapolate how much we've come into contact with. And even in the medical field and working with your practitioner, you know, BMI and all these things that come up, you're hit with it from so many different angles. And a lot of times you didn't necessarily choose that stuff. It's come to you and being able to then shake that off and see a different way of looking at things is really hard for people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I agree how impressionable young women are too. I know that my husband and I did a fitness challenge a couple of years ago and we didn't even realize we were talking about it and we were talking about how our body had changed. It was all very positive, but that's not what my daughter heard. And she started asking whether or not she was overweight. And I was Mm. like, oh my goodness, you know, we didn't even allude to that fact. It was just more that we were, we were leaner and fitter, but we are constantly being watched, whether it's, you know, on social media or by younger generation or loved ones, we're doing that 
possibly without even realizing. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, as adults, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was mortified when she asked one day, am I fat? And I was like, (laughs) "Um, what? But then I backtracked and I'm like, where'd she get that from? And I said to my husband, who has zero awareness about this sort of stuff and just doesn't even think it's a problem, I said to him, we've got to stop. This is not cool. Like, yeah, it's something we need to be more aware of, definitely, I think. Yeah, for sure. So, Steph, I would love to know more about what your book is about. I mean, it's called The Core Four. <laughs> and so <laughs> I can guess, but I would love for you to share a little bit more about what it is. Yeah, four years ago, I decided that based on what my community was grappling with, with their own health, I heard from a lot of people that said, well, okay, I think I've nailed the food part, but why, why am I still struggling with things or why don't I feel any different? (laughs) You know, like maybe my body feels a little bit better and I feel great in my body, but I mean, I'm still grappling with some stuff. And what I came to observe was that people would get really laser focused on one narrow thing. And this is not a judgment because everybody's been there, but the rest of their life was in shambles. So they're like, I'm really nailing my diet. I'm doing perfectly here and everything else is falling apart. Why don't I still feel good? Or I realize that I still have some things that I need to work on because it's not just one thing that's going to help move me forward so that I can really feel better in my body, feel stronger. You know, all the things that people want to feel like they're capable, they have capacity to do the things that they want to do in their life, use their body in the way they want to use their body, et cetera. So I put together a program that would incorporate these four pillars and everybody has like some variation of pillars or whatever they call it, but these four pillars of health that would introduce people to sustainable habits that they could try out in a relatively low risk environment. I mean, I can't take everybody to Costa Rica with me and like put them all in a retreat and say, well, it's like super low risk here because this isn't like real life. I mean, you still have to apply these habits and these behaviors in real life because what I tended to find was that people that were coming to me were saying, I've done the 21 day, you know, eliminate X, Y, Z food, or I've done the, you know, the seven days of not eating this thing or whatever it is. And I'm good during that short period of time, but then my life gets in the way as it always will. Mm -hmm. So how do we create and reinforce these behaviors, these habits outside of this nice experience that I'm going to have it sequestered away from the rest of my life in such a way that people feel like they can build capacity with their own skills and their own habits. And so the four pillars ended up being to eat nourishing foods with an emphasis on working on what's working for your bio-individual body, right? So not following like a certain XYZ diet, but what are really the foods that are working for you? And then other aspects of that, like meal planning and other things that go along with that to strengthen your body. So that's the second pillar. And so introducing the concept of strength training and meeting people where they're at. So originally when the program started, there was a barbell program. Well, not everybody come to find out through my own observation and doing this, people had access to a barbell or wanted to do barbell training or wanted to work out at home or wanted to do this when they're traveling. So then we added another component, which was sort of body weight stuff and getting people moving and then introducing weights to them and having videos that would guide them through the form and the technique. And then the third part is recharge your energy, which a lot of people think, okay, sleep. But I also have incorporated stuff that I've learned from people like Tony Schwartz, who 
does a brilliant job of talking about, you know, our workflow and how are we working throughout the day, whether we're household CEO or we are living the cube life or entrepreneurs or whatever we're doing, (laughs) you know, how do we manage that energy and how do we deal with stress? And then the last one is to get your mindset right. And this for so many people is really the biggest thing that they realize that they need to work on is their own perspectives or point of view. Do they see things from a limiting mindset? What are their values? What's even important to them? You know, how does community and purpose factor into their life and really taking it to some more of those soft, I'm using air quotes here, some of those more of those soft skills that really translate into people's ability to make change that lasts. Because I don't want people to be on, you know, a continuous set of diets forever and ever. Like a lot Mm. of people that we know that have been on diets for decades and decades, women especially can come to embrace their body right now for what it can do, because this was my experience, decades of dieting and thinking about how can I just make myself smaller and worrying about what I looked like and being so painfully self-conscious to then for me, it was really picking up some weights and fueling myself better and nourishing my body with the foods that really needed to then feel the benefits of that and to think, well, what can I, what else can I do with this body of mine? Right. It it wasn't just about what it looks like anymore. And, you know, not that it's bad. I think women sometimes listen to this and they're like, well, you're anti like aesthetic sports or you're anti, you know, wanting to change something about your body. And the thing I always ask people is, is it worth what it's going to cost you? And only, you know, the answer to that right? In the context of your individual life, your unique set of circumstances, your health, the things you're dealing with health-wise, your history, you know, there's so much that goes into it and we're all so different and unique. So I'm not anti that stuff, but I know that so many women are looking for an alternative to just the stuff that they're seeing on social media, the perfect bodies, you know, I'm 40, like, let's give it up. Like we're not, we're, a lot of us aren't, you know, 18 anymore. <laughs> Can we learn to embrace ourselves and really step into our own strength as middle-aged women who have so much left to do with our lives? And it's not over. The number of times I hear people say, oh, like, well, my life is over at 40. I just want to just like wow. shake people. Yeah. It's so depressing to me. And, and I think part of that is societal. Because women over a certain age, especially if they've not had children or their children are grown or become invisible. But the purpose of this book is so much more than just, and fortunately, when you look on Amazon, it is in the diet category, which like, I'm like, okay, can we subvert all of that? You know, can we <laughs> be the Trojan horse book that women end up picking up? Because it's not a book for losing weight. It's a book for gaining health. Yes, that is so awesome. And we just need so much more of that message. You know, it's I was on an interview recently and I was talking about this idea that younger women, mostly, you know, teens and twenties, mostly twenties really, because from the time I can remember and so many other women can remember, I was, you know, at the gym at 13 and going on diets with my mom and, you know, like constantly dieting and over-exercising and making sure that I didn't eat more than 20 grams of fat a day. I mean, it's just stupid stuff. And I remember saying to this person who was interviewing me that I really feel like, especially women who have major period problems, like very irregular periods or don't have a period at all, don't even really know what their natural body weight should be because they've been forcing their body into an unnatural state for so very long that 
you know, as a result, you know, they've lost their period or they have some other issue happening that they just don't even have any idea. And it was kind of a revelation to me when I said it, because it really is so true that we do this for so many years, sometimes decades, and then we finally come out of that cycle and then we put on 20 pounds or whatever it is. And that's where our body has wanted to be the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just, I feel like that is, you know, something that is a bit of a revelation to people too, because they've lived for so long trying to make their body be something that is just not this time around. Yeah. And we all have different seasons of life, whether we have children or not as, as women, right. I don't have children, mm-hmm. but whether we have children or not, our bodies are going to change. I think we have been sold this idea. Again, it's sort of this idea of diet culture and the fountain of youth that you look at Olympic athletes and I, for what it's worth, I really have loved these spreads that they've done on different athletes from different sports. And you get to see that despite the wide range of body sizes and shapes, these people are at the absolute pinnacle of their athletic career, right? They're in the Olympics, (laughs) but yet again, what do we see? What has been put in front of us as the ideal body, as the best body? It's usually young, white, thin, (laughs) abled, right? And it's true, right? And so when you look at that stuff, you think, okay, well, we can't even conceive of the fact that our bodies are going to change because we are fed this image of what we should be like. And it's almost like, you know, especially from what I know of the the sort of the mom world, it's even really intense there, probably even more so than in other areas, because women are like, I need to get my body back. I need to get my body back. I need to, and it's like, you just had a, a body altering experience, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's changed you and, and your chemistry or your, how your body looks and, and your body's not gone either. <laughs> no, anywhere. And, why do we devalue that? Why is there such a stress for women to get back to how they used to be? And I mean, it just boggles my brain and I get it. Cause I was, I used to be that person who thought, okay, well I need to, you know, how, how we all have that weight or we had that weight growing up that we thought we had to be, you know, 125 pounds. Like where did we get that number from? I don't know, but at that 125 was the magic number, girlfriend. I was yeah. like, I'm going to be that number no matter what if it kills me. What is that in kilos? Ridiculous. I didn't know that there is a magic number. Oh, <laughs> oh. Uh, well, <laughs> hold on. I'm going to convert that real kilos. quick. 50 kilos? 55 kilos is 100, 121 pounds. Well, 55 kilos is 121. Yeah, yeah so that's around 50 yeah. kilos. So basically 55 to 57, somewhere around. Yeah. yeah. 57 is 125. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to know for reference. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, so I don't true. fall into that trap in my next life. <laughs> Yeah, you better not. Not after all the work we've done in this life. Are you kidding me? Oh, geez. You know, there was something else that I wanted to talk about that's kind of a little bit off of what you're the topic that you're talking about right now, but very much related to the period party. And it was a conversation that we had on direct message on Instagram, because again, that's where all that's the conversations the only happen. Place apparently, that you can have conversations nowadays. <laughs> it's quite ridiculous. Well, especially with people you don't actually know, know in real life, like Steph and I don't actually know each other. Hopefully we will one of these days. But I, you know, we were talking about endometriosis and you'd mentioned that you were diagnosed at 33, I think, right? Mm -hmm. That was, yes. But you had had symptoms from the time you were really young, like 11, I believe. Mm -hmm. I would love to talk about that, about just your, your journey with that, because to have, I think you said your first pelvic exam at 11 to all the way to being 33 and being diagnosed 
that is a humongous problem. And I'm wondering if you write about that in the book or if you talk about that experience. Yeah. And I've shied away from talking about it a lot. And I finally recorded a podcast about it this year. And Oh, good. Glad that I'm not putting you on the spot then. (laughs) No, 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 it's fine. The reason I've been reluctant is because I know that so many women who have endo have had very diverse experiences, Mm -hmm. right? Ranging from, I made some dietary interventions and some lifestyle changes and wow, I feel so much better to none of that has literally worked for me. And I've had to have surgeries and been on birth control pills. And I mean, and have had fertility problems and it's very emotional and it's very charged because so many women have been dismissed and their pain has been dismissed as not real. You know, I always just sort of have held back a little bit because I don't want women to think essentially you're bragging because through making some dietary and lifestyle changes, I've had it relatively under control. So I've always held back for that reason. But when I was 10 and a half, I got my period. Yay. <laughs> for being like the first kid to, you know, go through puberty in your fifth grade class. Not mortifying at all. No. And I also got braces on top of it, which was just fantastic. So <laughs> at the end of fifth grade, I got punched in the face by a boy. Let's just <gasps> say that was like my whole fifth grade year. It was terrible. And my mom recognized that something probably didn't seem right because I was getting violently ill the first day or two of my period. I would just stay home and barf all day until there was nothing left. I mean, just, just horrendous pain. I was really sick. And I think she had enough wherewithal to think, okay, well, after this had gone on for a little bit of time, it, it was not right. And my cousin has endo and she's quite a bit older than me. And so my mom, I think was like, okay, let's get this checked out. So yeah, I went into the gynecologist and at the tender age of about 11 was told I was going to go to the doctor and talk to the doctor about it. And it ended in a pelvic exam, which I don't know what it would have been worse being prepared for it or not in hindsight, but the pelvic exam came, you know, the results were, oh, it's just hormones and you'll grow out of it. Oh, geez. Which happens to so many people, right? It's just the common thing. It's like, honey, it's part of it. Just suck it up. Yeah. And I continued Mm. to get sick for years, (laughs) years and years and years. And finally, at about 19, I went on birth control. And at that point, everything kind of got better. So I was on birth control until about the age of 35. So at that point, I mean, I was relatively asymptomatic for endo. And autoimmunity, I have, there's a lot of autoimmunity in my family. So then when I was 33, I was, you know, basically diagnosed with endo. And the doctor said, you know, has anybody ever told you that you have this? And I said, no, other than this experience when I was really young. But the doctor just said it was, you know, hormones and you'll grow out of it. But I think for me, the thing that early, early experience at the age of 11 cascaded off was this distrust of listening to my own body because if I felt so rotten and horrible, but there was really nothing wrong, then it must just be all in my head or I'm just making it way worse than it actually is. And I need to suck it up. So for me, that precipitated decades literally of not listening to my body or not believing that I had that agency over myself to know when something was wrong. And I mean, it was kind of like vindication at that point when I was 33, I was like, I 
I told you guys, <laughs> you know, one of those moments, but at that point I had already made significant dietary and lifestyle changes such that when I got off birth control and even till now I'm 40. So this was seven years ago, I've had relatively little problems. I've had some changes here and there, and then I've adjusted with other supplements and things of that nature just to sort of level stuff off. But I know not everybody has even that experience where women are just sort of pushed. They're either never, they never know what's going on. Or when they do find out, it's like immediately, we just want to take everything out of your, your pelvis, you know, take all your organs out. And it's sort of like, where's the other conversation about, can we try these other things first? Maybe they won't work. Maybe they will. Like, what are your options? And I think that's the part that really just frosts me over is that not only are women so dismissed, but it's held against us as a sign of weakness. If you know what I mean? Like, oh, you've got woman problems. And it's like, (laughs) if you had any idea what that's like. So I wish that there were more awareness and I'm grateful for the work that you both do in this area, because I think I see things are changing and I see you know, for social media, for all the, the crappy stuff it brings has allowed a lot of women to even become aware of things like endometriosis or other things that they might not know they're dealing with. And then at least know that they have some different options. Yes. Oh my gosh. Mm, I think that's so yes, important. Thank you for that. having that conversation. Cause I know a lot of other people and especially a lot of obviously other women are in that same position that you were in and that whole conversation it's so needed. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So yeah. I appreciate that. We are out of time, so we are going to need to say goodbye. But before we do that, do you want to let everybody know where they can find you? Yeah, they can find me at stephgodrow.com, which is my website and has links to all my social media and on Harder to Kill Radio. And then the book is The Core Four. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Be sure to join us for more Girl Talk Gone Menstrual and let us help you get to know your period and your body better. In the meantime, if your hormones are screaming for more, check out previous period party episodes. And of course, if you love what you hear, please take three seconds to rate the podcast.